2: This is Solvable. I'm Jacob Weisberg.
1: At our core, what we're trying to do is improve human well-being as much as possible.
2: The holidays are the season for charity, the time when we give away money to the causes we care about and to help people who are suffering. But how do we make our decisions about where to give? For many of us, it's just a matter of habit or responding to solicitations or the disaster or crisis that seems the most pressing. But should we be thinking about the effectiveness of our giving, how much suffering can be alleviated, how many lives saved for the same donated dollar? We live in a world in which there are really
1: cost-effective, proven ways to save the lives of kids that are dying. And at least as a benchmark, we should be able to say, you know, you could spend $10 million distributing anti-malarial bed nets. And those $10 million are going to protect 2 to 4 million households from getting malaria and are going to save the lives of several thousand people.
3: It sounds like a lot of the programs that you fund are directly connected to measurable things like health and consumption. Can you imagine this applying to other areas of charity?
2: I think it extends to far more areas of charity
3: than one would think.
2: Buddy Shaw is the managing director of GiveWell, an organization that researches the impact of giving across a variety of causes and makes recommendations for where and how to give.
1: My Solvable is helping people identify charities that do the most good per dollar spent.
2: My co-host Ann Applebaum spoke with Buddy about the importance of giving and how his organization evaluates the many worthy causes out there. Here's their conversation.
3: Thinking back to when you were a child or a young adult, what's your earliest memory of donating money to a charitable cause? Actually,
1: growing up, you know, I grew up in rural, um, small town Pennsylvania, but we would go to visit my family in East Africa and India fairly regularly. And so probably the earliest memory I have of donating money or doing something that's charitable is going with my grandfather uh, in a rural part of Western India and serving food at a school for deaf and mute children.
3: And did your family talk about charity? Was there a conversation at home about it as well?
1: There were conversations about, I think, social justice, uh, not charity so narrowly, um, but definitely that, you know, we're very fortunate to be living comfortable upper middle class lives in the United States. I remember reading John Rawls' the Theory of Justice my freshman year of college, where he talks about our moral standing in this world or what we actually have access to is an accident of birth. And when I was reading that, basically it brought me back to those memories, visiting family in Africa and India and recognizing that the fact that I was born in the U.S. meant that I had far more opportunities than uh, even my relatives and other people that I would regularly interact with on those trips. And there seemed to be something that was fundamentally morally unjust about the fact that I had a much better shot at living a full and meaningful life than those people did simply by virtue of where I happened to be born.
3: Mm-hmm. Still, give well is something more specific um, you know, than the kind of charity you were used to growing up. First of all, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it does. What's the aim of GiveWell?
1: Yeah, so GiveWell, really what we're about is trying to find the charities that save or improve lives most cost-effectively. Essentially, what we're looking for are programs that have strong evidence of effectiveness – that what they're intending to do is actually leading to improvements in people's lives. Um, But beyond the evidence of effectiveness is that they're extremely cost-effective, that they do that with as little money as possible. Two examples um, are one in global malaria. So hundreds of thousands of kids die every year simply because they don't have access to a $5 anti-malarial bed net um, or other malaria preventive treatments. And GiveWell essentially has found through rigorous research uh, that the academic literature shows that if you can get an anti-malarial bed net, into the hands um, of a family, if they hang it up properly and sleep under it, that that's extremely cost-effective at saving lives. And then we do the work to make sure that we find organizations that are able to do that as cost-effectively as possible and that have more capacity to absorb funding um, and deliver those programs. Uh, and so based on all of that research, we make recommendations to anyone looking to make a charitable donation so that their money goes as far as possible.
3: And how do you measure effectiveness? Um, Is it to do with length of life? Is it to do with, you know, the amount of food people have? Is it standard of living? What What is your ruler that you're using?
1: Yeah, so this is a really hard question because, you know, at our core, what we're trying to do is improve human well-being as much as possible. And so we're actually agnostic on the actual cause, whether that's improving incomes or lives, Or education, Um, but obviously, if you're choosing between a bunch of different charities, you're forced to make these very challenging trade-offs. And so, where GiveWell is currently focused is on programs that save lives, or programs that improve people's consumption or material well-being. Last year, we directed over 150 million dollars, and the question is. How much of that money should go to programs that save people's lives versus how much of that money should go to proven cost-effective ways that improve incomes? And that forces us to make very challenging moral trade-offs and ask questions such as, how many people's incomes would you have to double in the poorest parts of the world in order to forego saving someone's life. Because that's the real choice if you're really obsessed with maximizing impact that you have to make when you're choosing where to send money and where not to.
3: Is maximizing impact, though, is that always the best guide to the best charity? Um, I ask because I've had a lot of involvements with organizations and NGOs and charities that are linked to problems of democracy and governance. As a board member and in other ways, And, of course, these are subjects that don't lend themselves at all to measures of cost effectiveness. You know, you can invest for many decades in democracy in a particular country and see no results until suddenly you do. What makes you think that there's always going to be a numerical value on giving? Or how do you know that that's the best way to really improve life?
1: I think it's a really challenging and fundamental question, Um, We started with a subset of things one can do that were highly measurable. And I think that's valuable because there's a real opportunity cost of those dollars. We live in a world in which there are really cost-effective, proven ways to save the lives of kids that are dying. And at least as a benchmark, we should be able to say, you know, you could spend $10 million distributing anti-malarial bed nets and those 10 million dollars are going to protect 2 to 4 million households from getting malaria and are going to save the lives of several thousand people. Now, if you want to say let's make a 10 million dollar grant or a charitable investment in something that builds democracy, I think, you know, we should really think through what are the assumptions that that grant or investment is likely to be better than letting several thousand kids die that you could otherwise save. And so that's not to say that maybe these longer-term, riskier bets in things like strengthening democratic institutions might be better at improving human welfare. I think that's a possibility. But our starting point is to say, what are the set of things that we know with high degree of confidence really improve lives dramatically? And then if we as we consider things that are harder to measure and riskier or have longer time horizons, at least there's some benchmark to say, you know, does it seem plausible that this is going to be better than that? Um, and I think that there's a whole other set of questions on how do you actually effectively evaluate the probability of impact when you're investing in things like strengthening democracy, and how much capacity is there for philanthropic capital to actually affect those things because there's such crowded spaces with very powerful other actors. Um, all that to say, you know, very intellectually open to the possibility that there are things like that that are very hard to measure and don't let themselves to this approach that could be extremely effective, um, but would start from the position of of skepticism and trying to do that mental exercise of, do we actually plausibly think that this could be better than, you know, saving lives of thousands of people uh, that we know how to do extremely cost-effectively.
3: And how do you know that the investments you make have a long-term impact? Um, You know, if you can save somebody's life, obviously that's 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 a plus, Um, But how do you make sure that the money you've invested, since you're thinking along those lines, um, not that I necessarily would, but that is what you do, um, how do you know that it will pay off in the long term and not just in the short term?
1: Within the set of things that Give All recommends, there are life-saving programs and income or consumption-improving programs. Under the life-saving programs, generally, if you get past the stage of infant mortality, Then people will go on to live full lives. So, right there, what we're talking about is averting a death that generally is going to translate into 60 years of someone's life, um, 60 to 70 years of someone's life. Then there's things that we don't even include in our cost effective estimates, which is all the more fuzzy economic evidence that if people have, if there are lower um, infant mortality rates, longer life expectancy, then that contributes to long-term economic growth and stability of a country. We're not even incorporating any of those potential benefits. But obviously, if you look at global development over the last 50 to 70 years, you do see this correlation between improvements in health and longevity and general improvements in the stability and in incomes of a society. And so, you know. There's a lot of complexity around whether that's correlation or causation, um, but those are the types of long-term effects that you could see even beyond just the additional 60 years of life. Then on the income-improving charities that that we invest in, one is providing deworming pills. So it's just a couple cents to deworm kids of parasitic infections, and based on one large randomized trial, what we find is that 20 years later, if you spend a hundred dollars to deworm 100 kids, so very cheap to deworm the kids, that That cohort of children have an increase in their consumption of over thousand dollars twenty years later, and so there are these long term effects on consumption and material well being for some of the programs. Um, But overall, you know, I think we are focused on saying that that improvement of life of an individual um, that lasts their whole life, you know, dying before five versus living till sixty, is really substantial and meaningful, and that any other benefits beyond that. you know, is, is almost gravy because it's, it's so cost-effective to just do that core thing of, of saving the life and letting someone live.
3: Um, obviously, by definition, it's easier to do cost-effective charity in poorer countries because less money is needed to make a bigger difference. Doesn't this mean that you're leaving out people in, in wealthy countries? We have now in the United States um, people who are going hungry because of the COVID pandemic. You know, people who live lives of great misery. Um, But it doesn't sound like your charity would be directed at them.
1: You know, our two philosophical starting points are one, all human lives have equal value, regardless of where they're born. And the second is, how do we improve as many of those lives as possible with a set amount of money? With those philosophical starting points, it does mean that the vast majority and currently all of our work is focused on the poorest parts of the world because. That allows us to improve the lives of as many people as possible and we don't draw moral distinctions between someone here at home and a person living 10,000 miles away. Um, and I think one important thing to emphasize is there are definitely worthy causes and there's suffering here in the U.S. and in other high-income countries. But if you just look at the scale of the suffering, it is very different. The average median person in the Democratic Republic of Congo lives on a few dollars a day. And even the lowest income people in the United States have 10, 20, 30 times as much consumption and material well-being as that. And that's not to Downplay how important causes are here, but if you truly believe that all lives have equal value and you're trying to do as much good as possible per dollar, I do think that leads you and it leads us to focus on uh, the lowest income parts of the world because you know we think we can improve more people's lives by a larger amount.
3: How do you identify the charities that you give to? I mean, do charities apply to you? Do they present their programs, or do you go out and look for, um, look at what people are doing and then evaluate their work?
1: So our team of researchers are going through all the public health journals, economics journals, trying to find the latest studies and then doing intensive due diligence with the actual organizations that would be delivering programs that have some evidence of effectiveness um, on them based on what's been published in literature. So it is us going out into the world trying to find the best giving opportunities through a mix of looking at um, research as well as talking to practitioners in the field.
3: It sounds like a lot of the programs that you fund are directly connected to measurable things like health and consumption. Um, Can you imagine this applying to other areas of charity?
1: I think it extends to far more areas of charity than one would think. So you think about highly measurable randomized trials, you might think health, but it, as you said, applies to consumption programs such as straight cash transfers to the poorest households on earth, you could also apply it to things like education. If you're trying to get more girls into school in rural India, you could test a whole bunch of different interventions to do that. You could do it for programs that might improve the well-being of subsistence farmers. You know, do new seed varieties work? Do new farming techniques work? Um, and so it extends to many things. And I think that's one of the big revolutions in charity is the idea that you can measure a lot more than we previously thought. That having been said, I do think there are a number of areas where this approach just doesn't work. Um, so you know, you can't have directly measurable effects on really basic science research, R&D technology, perhaps parts of the arts, strengthening the media. So there's certainly a, a wide range of things that might not be amenable to this type of measurement approach. Um, but I think there's a surprising amount that actually is.
3: Has the global pandemic shifted your recommendations for giving this year, and for, do you think it will for next year?
1: Yeah, so we, we um, took a hard look at COVID and whether there are any highly cost-effective giving opportunities that we could identify. Um, and so there were a number of grants that we made initially in COVID, primarily supporting uh, developing low-income country governments in their COVID response. Um, but I think we realized two things. One is that a lot of these drivers of death that are preventable by very cost-effective programs still needed to be delivered during COVID. And that was much more challenging and potentially going to be underfunded because of the global focus on COVID. And so we made the strategic decision to really focus on the programs that we knew were cost-effective and would continue to need to be delivered during COVID. Otherwise, you could see a big increase in deaths from causes like malaria or vitamin A deficiency-related deaths. And so it's something that we continue to monitor, um, but it's also something where there's a huge influx of cash from governments, multilaterals, pharmaceuticals. And so if you think about where's my marginal dollar as someone making a philanthropic, contribution at the end of the year going to be highest, it might not be in a place where there are billions of dollars flowing in from national governments, multilaterals, and pharmaceuticals. And so, you know, that's the lens that we're always trying to evaluate on is where's your marginal dollar going to be most cost effective?
3: Who are the clients for your research? Is it other philanthropies? Is it big charitable organizations? Is it individual donors? Uh, who, who, who are you advising?
1: All of our research is fully transparent and publicly available and is used by a wide range of donors. So we have over 50,000 GiveWell donors that use our recommendations. And that's everything from people giving $25 at the end of the year to many people that are giving well over a million dollars.
3: And how are you funded? (laughs) What about your organization? Um, How do do you do take a a percentage of, of money that's given to you? How does that work?
1: Yeah, we take zero fees from any of the donations. um, And in the way that any nonprofit would be funded, it's just through um, donors that believe in our mission and there are zero fees.
3: What are three things that listeners can do right now to learn more about smart donating and to make smart donations themselves? What do you advise people listening to this program?
1: One is to, I'd recommend a couple of books. Um, So Peter Singer's The Life You Can Save, Or Will McCaskill's Doing Good Better are two books by philosophers, but really practical around, you know, what are our moral obligations to others and how can we do as much good as possible? Um, And a third book that I'd recommend is Larissa McFarquhar's Strangers Drowning. You know, she's a a writer for The New Yorker, wrote this book about really incredible people who have devoted their lives to basically... You know, donating as much as possible to the most effective places, and just what's going through their own psychology and minds um, in making that shift from living a fairly normal life to fully devoting themselves to improving the lives of others, and then you know, obviously going through the GiveWell website and and reading about this kind of research um, is is a third thing that I would recommend.
2: Buddy Shaw is the managing director of GiveWell. Be sure to check out our show notes for suggestions he shared for ways to learn more about informed giving. There's so many worthy causes, especially this year. Next week on Solvable, we'll hear from Rachel Strower about how regenerative agriculture can help solve the problems of climate change and unsustainable extractive farming. Solvable is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our show is produced by Camille Baptista, senior producer Jocelyn Frank. Catherine Girardot is our managing producer, and our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Special thanks to Kobe Guilford, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Carly Migliori, and Khadijah Holland. I'm Jacob Weisberg.
0: The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T Mobile for Business at Mobile World.
2: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VTW group void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
3: 18 plus.
1: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full
3: of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainer, Fistle Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than
2: 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th.